Two weeks ago, we were in Isaiah 53, the Mount Everest or the pinnacle of Isaiah, arguably the, the pinnacle of the Old Testament, as we see the clearest description of the Messiah. And he's described as the suffering servant and not the conquering king that we would expect, but he was because he had to conquer sin. And the only way to conquer sin was to pay for it on the cross. Today, I'd like to start by reading part of Isaiah 53 again, because that will lead into Isaiah 54. And just to remember, just parts of Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from men whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. And we went through and we we talked about each phrase and we studied that. And and hopefully it it stirred our hearts to see the depth of, of that sacrifice. But I want to follow that today as we come into Isaiah 54 and 55 with a question. And and I don't want to be be trite here, but my question is simply this. So what? So what? Before you stone me right now, some of you are like, do not treat Isaiah 53 that way. So what? What difference does it make? And, And I'd like you to interact a little bit. What difference should Isaiah 53 make in our lives? Is it just that I have my fire insurance, I'm saved, I know I don't have to go to hell, well, who now I can do whatever I want. What difference should Isaiah 53 make? Thoughts? Everything, Everything okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Someone want to narrow that down a little bit? <laughs> or expand on, or expound on it a little bit? What was that, Lorna? Gratefulness. Gratefulness. Absolutely. There should be a gratefulness for that sacrifice. Didn't cost us a penny. Yeah. And so there should be a sense maybe of indebtedness to him for that. Amen. And who else? What, what difference does it make? It gives us hope. Exactly. It gives us hope. Now, some of you looked at me pretty strangely when I asked the question, so what? On Isaiah 53. Because I'm not making light of Isaiah 53. But here's the thing. For us to understand Isaiah 54 and 55, that is what the author is doing, is he's answering the question, what difference does this make? These two chapters serve as as a a follow-up to this pinnacle of Isaiah 53 to make sure we don't just read it and say, oh, we love it, that's such a wonderful chapter, and walk away. 
Because if we walk away and we're not changed by a chapter by Isaiah 53, we've missed the whole point. I would argue we've missed the whole point of the gospel and what God is wanting to do in our hearts. Because as Kristen said, it should change everything. And so we're going to look at a number of things that he brings out today. We'll look at Isaiah 54. A week from now, we'll look at Isaiah 55 and answer the question in a real, real way, in a beautiful way, so what? What difference does that make? And we're going to see today especially a difference of relationship, a difference that because of the sacrifice in Isaiah 53, now we can have ongoing relationship with God the Father that we could not have before. And so there's hope in that. There's joy in that. There's responsibility in that. I, 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 one of the, the things that I have the, the sacred honor of doing many times is helping marriages. And I get to talk with couples, and I have seen marriages on the brink of falling apart. And because people have come together and come under the, the forgiving power of God's Word, marriages are saved. And and sometimes one spouse is just blowing it in some significant ways and they come back and there's forgiveness and there's restoration. And that almost always leads to some incredible things in the marriage because when that forgiveness is offered, when that forgiveness is taken, there is a gratitude, there is an appreciation, there's a renewed relationship. And I've seen people have powerful testimonies that they've then used that to say this is how God has changed us. In Isaiah 54, Isaiah is going to use the, uh, the symbol of marriage, of motherhood, of widowhood. And he's going to use all these things to try to help us understand that Isaiah 53 changes everything. He takes the worst of situations and the worst of circumstances. And because he paid for our sins on the cross, and as we studied two weeks ago, he paid for all the consequences of our sin in this fallen world on the cross, and he bore that, He's taking care of it. And if we don't live in light of that, if we don't change how we live, we haven't experienced it. Turn with me to Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one under a chair right around you. Please grab that. Follow along. You can read on your apps if you want. We're in the ESV translation. And we'd love to see what God's Word has. And picture this, after Isaiah 53, where God has bought with the price His people, the price of His blood, these next two chapters are really a love song to those that do believe, that those that, to those that do follow. First to Israel, talking about their new Zion. But what's interesting about this passage is it includes us. As we're going to see, we saw in Isaiah 53, His offspring. We've seen it in all the chapters leading up to this, the nations We're going to see it here that he's talking about building a kingdom and building a family from every nation, from every tribe, from every tongue. And so, yes, he's talking to Israel when it's written. But he's talking to Israel and he's telling them what will happen after the Messiah, after Jesus, and in the new heaven and new earth. And guess what? Because of Jesus, we're part of that discussion. Because of Jesus, we're in the new heaven and the new earth. So we can read this knowing first it's for Israel, but secondly, it is for us as well. So Isaiah 54, we want to read this love song to his bride and see what benefits come from the curse being reversed, from the work of Christ. We start with with verses 1 through 3, and the chapter is broken up into three images, three pictures. 
And, the, and, and each of the pictures is a, a something that is hurtful or, or that is hurting, that has been affected by sin and showing how God reverses that. And in verses 1 through 3, he uses the symbol of a barren woman or an infertile woman, someone that hasn't been able to have kids. And he starts with, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. First word. Catch the first word there? Sing. The, the first thing he says after this incredible chapter about what Jesus has done is, you got to sing. you got to just, just overflow with praises for who he is. A little bit later he says, break forth into singing. And, and the idea here is sing for joy exclamation point. It's, it's, it's something that is a command, but there's so much emphasis on this that we've got to sing. It's why we sing in our services. Pastor Andrew, a few weeks ago, talked about Christianity as one of the few religions that sings. We have something to sing about. And God has said, sing and worship. Oh, the celebration last night was a wonderful time of singing as we celebrated our new life in Christ. One author said, it could be translated, let joyful song explode out of you. Is that how we come Sunday morning? I'm, I'm going to explode with song for our Savior. Now, sometimes I know we take our singing and our time of singing as sort of the warm-up for the message and got to have that half hour to wake up for the coffee and the caffeine to kick in, right? Ever, ever felt that way? So, so how do we come with this kind of attitude to singing? We need to remember this is a response to meditating on what Christ has done. If you come cold Sunday morning and you haven't even started meditating on on what Christ has done, worship is going to be dull and boring and meaningless. Because it's not responding. It's it's simply rote obedience, which we should obey God. It's simply, though, coming and, and not thinking through why we're worshiping. Whereas we see an example here. Sing, break forth into singing because of what God has done. Many, many of our songs are about the cross and the resurrection and forgiveness and reconciliation with Christ. Almost every song this morning, I don't know if you noticed that, was about that. Because God's told us, sing about these things. It is good to remember. So the, uh, Isaiah here uses a, a barren woman as his first example of someone hurting. And, and he, in their time, fertility was a matter of pride in fact, a wife was to bear children for her husband. That was her primary responsibility was to add to the family in that way. And so someone that was barren was considered lower in socioeconomical status. They felt shame. And, and, and we see that with Sarah in, in the Old Testament. We see that with Hannah. And we see that over and over. And I know the heartache even today of infertility, Right? It's hard when we have these longings and these dreams and we're saying, God, why aren't you fulfilling those? And our only answer is to trust God. But for them, it was added a layer of being social outcasts if you were there. And so it hurt even more. And so Isaiah uses this as the first example. And he's comparing Israel to this. And as we saw in Isaiah 52, the the challenge here is Israel has not fulfilled what God has asked them to do. They have not been a blessing to the nations. They disobeyed God and they haven't borne spiritual children. 
And so God is using this in a spiritual way to say, you blew it. You disobeyed me. You walk away, walked away from me. And not at all is he equating physical infertility with sinfulness. But for them, it was even worse because he says, you don't have children and it's your fault. Because you walked away from your husband. It's hard to have kids if you're never with your husband. And we saw that in 52, and we're going to see that throughout this chapter. And God is saying, this is where you were. You walked away, you rebelled against me. They had lost many of their children physically to war, to exile, to being carted off to distant countries. But God still had made a promise to Abram, right? He still had made a promise, I will make a great nation out of you. I will do this. And so we see, and what we've talked about through Isaiah, is Israel was the first servant. But they walked away from God. And so God promised the servant, the Messiah, that we studied in Isaiah 53, that would make the wrong right that would uphold this covenant. And so he uses this as a backdrop to see how incredible God's work is. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you have not been in labor. And then the turning point. In each of these examples today, we're going to see a desperate situation and that Jesus changes it. He says, For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitation be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. There's some good instructions for us to go home and do. But what he's saying is, even though you blew it, even though you don't have spiritual children, you will. Because of Jesus Christ. For them, because of the Messiah, they didn't know that it was Jesus Christ yet. But looking back, because of Jesus Christ, He would add to their offspring. In fact, verse 3, For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. Your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. And we see a picture of a nation that walked away from God, but because of God's forgiveness, still is going to be a blessing through the servant. A blessing to all the nations, to all the world. Paul talks about this in in Galatians 4:27 through 28, he quotes actually verse 1 here. And he says, For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. Sound familiar? He's quoting Isaiah. It's great. And he helps us understand it. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of, of the one who has a husband. And verse 28 is his explanation. Now you, brothers, and he's talking to Gentiles. He's talking to people that weren't part of Israel. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. And Paul says, because of the blood of Christ, you get to be part of that promise. Every one of us that believes in Jesus Christ are part of that offspring, part of that expanding. And so in verse 2, he does give the image of a tent. Don, can you put up that picture of a tent? This is a Bedouin tent. Do you see all the little the extensions? See the, and they would just add more sticks and more blankets. And what they do is if, if they had more kids, hey, let's add another extension to the tent. We need a little more space, you know, a little more room. Now, they didn't each get their own room, but, but at some point you have to expand. If one of their kids got married, we're just going to add onto the tent maybe a little privacy curtain. 
And, and we just add to the family that way. And we, we saw this even when we were in Israel in some of the towns. They, even if it wasn't tents, they would just add on to the family house with, with stone and make a new bedroom for the new family. If you got a second wife, she needed a place to stay. Now, I'm, I'm not making it up. That actually, in study, that, that was one of their reasons they would add to their tent. But the, the idea that Isaiah is saying here is make sure you're ready to expand. God says, I will provide the children. But do you catch two? Two is all commands. You, you enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitation be stretched out. Do not hold back. You lengthen your cords, which are the the, the cords that held the tent down, especially when there was wind and things. You had to have strong cords. Strengthen your stakes. Be ready for guests. Be ready for company. And so God is saying, I'll expand my kingdom, but you need to be part of it. Be part of it. And so out of all this, we see point number one, the barren woman. God wants his people to be part of the great things he is doing to bring in the nations. God wants his people to be part of the great things he is doing to bring in the nations. In verse 3, we see that continue. I'll spread abroad to the right and the left, talking about how expansive this will be. Your offspring will possess the nations. We just read about offspring, didn't we? Isaiah 53. Look at Isaiah 53.10. Just back to the chapter right before. Because it's, it's deliberately using the same word to tie them together. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. And that's the servant who because of his blood, we can become sons and daughters of God. We can become part of the family. A couple of things that that we need to think through as we we think through these three verses. One is, as I mentioned, they remind us of the covenant to Abraham. A covenant that fallen human beings failed to uphold, but God in His perfect faithfulness fulfilled. And and they would have caught that. There's so many things here that refer to that covenant. And in Genesis 22 is one of the, the places where we see it repeated I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. So we see that that was the promise to Abraham. And we see it fulfilled through Christ. In fact, Psalm 2.8 talks about the anointed Messiah. And God says, ask of me to the Messiah, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession." Oh, what an incredible thing these verses are. To follow up missions conference last week, to follow up and see how, how God, His desire is to expand his, his kingdom, expand His family to every nation. Pastor Andrew did a great job last week of stepping us through the Bible, right? And seeing that theme throughout the whole Bible. Here's just another verse where we see God says, I will expand my offspring to all nations. William Carey, a great missionary to India, used this passage, these verses, as his call to missions. And, and there's, there's so many things we know about him. I just want to read parts of the things from his life which are, are really interesting. 
Because he was around the time of the Revolutionary War, so back around that time. And during those days, most Protestants believed that the Great Commission had been given only to the apostles. And so that was their job. And now we should not have any part of, of evangelism and outreach. And there was the, this was the thought in the church. And William Carey was like, as he read the Bible, he's like, that's not the, what the Bible says. That makes no sense. And so he began preaching about it and preaching against the, the Baptist um, association that he was part of there. And in fact, at one of the meetings of the Baptist ministers, he, he brought it up so much that one of the doctors there, one of the, the, the elderly people said, young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. And we see that the church where he was at had some issues with evangelism. They, they missed the heart of God. So he wrote a book on it and, and he, he kept preaching on it because he wasn't going to back down from God's word. And in fact, he was invited a couple years later to preach to the ministers and he preached out of this text. And he spoke of verses 2 and 3 and that these are imperatives. These are commands. Enlarge the tent. And God wants to bring an offspring and we're to be part of it. In fact, he's the one that in that sermon used a phrase that we sometimes use. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Have you heard that? He used that as part of teaching on these two verses to say God is doing great things expect him to bring the nations in now will you be part of it will you attempt great things for god will you attempt to enlarge your tent to go bring other people into the tent following that he he was really disappointed because no action was taken but a few people got together andrew fuller was one of them and they said is there something we could do and they got together in a, a side meeting and they founded one of the missions organizations there's a lot more to the story and a lot more to, to William Carey's sacrifices as he saw his first daughter die from, the, um, from sickness. He saw a wife who just struggled on the mission field and ended up going insane and he cared for her. But here's the end of the story. He did go to India. He never took a furlough. He never returned to England. He stayed for 41 years, dying there at age 73. When all was said and done, he had translated the complete Bible into six languages and portions of the Bible into 29 others. He had founded over 100 rural schools for the people of India. He had founded Saramaphore College, which is still training ministers to this day. He introduced the concept of a savings bank to the farmers of India. He published the first Indian newspaper. He wrote dictionaries and grammars in five different languages. He so influenced the nation of India that largely through his efforts, the practice of sati, the burning of widows, was outlawed. He made a huge difference because he took these verses seriously and said, God is doing great things and he's commanded us to be part of it. At the end of each section, I have a couple questions for us to answer. The first here is, is, am I committed to expanding the tent? Am I committed to, to having this heart of God? Keep in mind, this is a result of Isaiah 53. And the idea here is, Isaiah 53, if Jesus gave his life and bore our sins on himself so that people could come into the kingdom of God, might that be important? Shouldn't that be our heart then? Shouldn't we be part of that? 
And so when we talk about expanding the tent here, you know, we've talked about expanding the table and adopting as many as possible. Well, now we'll use Isaiah's metaphor and expand the tent. When we talk about it, there's two aspects that I think we need to think about. Number one is, how is my heart for telling the people about Christ? Telling others about Christ. How's my heart for missions? We talked about that last week. But, but here's the deal. Are we telling people next door about Christ? Are we telling people in the next cubicle about Christ? Are we, is that our heart to where we just burn that they've got to know who Christ is? Because of Isaiah 53. You know, a, a good sort of test is, do I get excited when people come to Christ? The angels do. God does. Is that just an ordinary thought to me? Or do I get really excited? Someone came to know God. They're going to be in heaven. They've got the next tent room over for me. That's a test for how do we know God's... How are we doing with God's heart? Is that our heart? First, So the first part of this is am I sharing the gospel? Am I committed to sharing the gospel? Second part of this... Am I committed to let people that do know Christ into my tent? How are we doing at being a family, a church family? Isaiah says, enlarge your tent. He doesn't say build another tent two cities over. There's a level of commitment here of bringing someone in your home. And so as we grow and as we see people accept Christ and as we see people come in, do we have that level of commitment? Will we bring them into our lives? Will we bring them into discipleship? And will we pour into them? And will we be a family? Because that's what God wants. That's what God wants. Uh, It is such a joy to see so many things happening with church family this year. To see almost half of you at our our family night uh, a few weeks back where we just enjoyed each other's company, ate some good chili not sure about who won, but uh, no, just kidding. <laughs> it was good chili. <laughs> and played games together. That's part, the, the purpose of that is for us to get involved in each other's lives and get to know each other. Now, if that was all we did, that's a social club. That's not the end result. But until we do some things that, that build into each other's lives and we get to know each other, it's harder to minister t- together. But man, I love when we minister together too. There's something about doing Second Harvest together and Awana together that brings us together. How are we doing at expanding the tent? Practical way to do this is on Sunday morning, every Sunday morning, look around. Look around and say, is there someone I don't know? Is there someone that's new? Is there someone that just needs to know? Maybe taking someone that's new, hey, sit by me. Do you, need, you want to know where nursery is? You want to know? I noticed your child screaming. No. <laughs> we have a great nursery that can help you out. <laughs> no, but, but parents want to know these things. Uh, when we've been on vacation, we've looked up churches, and, and one of the things we looked at is, what are they going to do with my kids? And when we got to there, one of them in particular, we got there, and um, they, they, people came up to us and said, hey, your kids are this age. If, if you want to put them here, you can. We'll, we'll help you get there. As a mom and dad, that meant the world to us of feeling part of their tent, feeling like family there. And these are just practical things. But how do we do on Sunday morning and things like that? 
Or are we so into our own little heads and our own little worlds that we don't notice anyone else? What does God's Word say? Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitation be stretched out. Do not hold back. Ah, what a word. Second question out of these three verses. We we have to go through the rest of the chapter still. Don't ever think you're at a point that God can't redeem your mistakes. Don't ever think you're at a point where God can't redeem your mistakes. And where I'm getting that from is Israel blew it. I mentioned that, right? Israel blew it. They, they failed at being the servant that God wanted them to be to expand the family. But God forgave and restored and says, be part of it now. Be part of what I'm doing. Don't ever think that your mistakes and, and our times where we have rebelled against God make it where God can't redeem those and use those and keep us as part of what He's doing. Every believer has a part in what God is doing in the kingdom of God. Every believer is a sinner that has been saved. Every believer has been disqualified if it was just up to us. We dare not start to to make levels of who's more qualified and who's less qualified based on if we sinned or not. Because Isaiah 53, see these these all flow out of Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53 says the Messiah took every one of our sins on himself and paid for every one of them, including their consequences. Wow. Wow. So the first picture is Israel as a barren woman who didn't bear children, but God now gives her many, many descendants. All those who believe in Jesus Christ. The second illustration, verses 4 through 10, is of the widow or the lonely wife. And he, he goes back and forth between the two. The widow or the lonely wife. And the promise here is God will renew. This is the reversal. God will renew His promise of relationship with His people. God will renew His promise of relationship with His people. We know when we've wronged somebody, don't we? And it creates distance in that relationship. And we've wronged God. We've rebelled against Him. And that has created distance in that relationship. But because of Isaiah 53, this is another result of Isaiah 53, that's taken care of. And so so the first so what is we need to be expanding the tent, sharing the gospel, because that's the heart of God. The second so what is we need to realize that God is restoring relationship and act like that relationship's important. Let's look at these verses. Verse 4, fear not. At least 12 times in Isaiah before this, he said, fear not. He's trying to get through and say, stop being afraid of following me. You let your sin create, create all kinds of fear. And the opposite of fear is trust and joy. And so fear not means trust me, have joy in me. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood will, you will remember no more. Now, now, now think about this verse. And, and think of it in terms of discipline. When, when I discipline my children, there is a moment where you bring them back to the family that they are wondering what the other kids are going to say. Right? And, and kids are kids. Sometimes what are they doing? Ha! Ah! 
You got disciplined by dad. Ah! You got caught. And they shame them. Israel's been disciplined. God has brought them back through his son. And he says, fear not, you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, you will not be disgraced. This is taken care of. One of the rules in our family is if you, if you laugh at or shame someone else for being disciplined, then you automatically get the same discipline. That's been fairly, fairly effective. <laughs> for whatever reason. I think that's probably, we, we try to teach the reasons not to as well, but that's just a, a motivation, I think. But God is saying to Israel, oh, my child, my wife. He's using the image, the, the metaphor he's going to use here is husband and wife. My wife, I know you walked away and you were disciplined for a while, but oh, I love you. You won't be ashamed. You won't be disgraced. In fact, you will forget the shame of your youth. And the reproach of your widowhood, you will remember no more. And again, he's talking figuratively here. The shame of their youth. A lot of scholars think that might be the the time in in Egypt and the idolatry that came out of that while they were in the wilderness. And so looking back at the youth of their their nation, the reproach, reproach of your widowhood almost certainly talks about the Babylonian exile. And he's saying, in your history, you blew it at the beginning, you blew it in the middle, you blew it at the end. But that's just going to be a little blip because I love you and I've forgiven that and I've taken care of that. The reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. And again, the imagery of widowhood, like barrenness, would have been so loaded for them. Because, because when, when someone became a widow, their protection was gone. Husbands were their protection. They were their providers. They were the ones that enabled them to have social standing. And so there was, there was great difficulty in widowhood. Think about Ruth and Naomi. And that's what brings that story into such an amazing story of God's grace and provision and care. One of the Proverbs of the time, a Sumerian proverb, was poverty is the widow's lot. She's just going to be outcast, alone, and poor. And God says, oh no, oh no. Not my bride. You won't even remember this. The servant here is taking away the shame of their sin. Don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed. This is taken care of. And so A there, when we think about what God is doing, the past is taken care of. And the image here is of a restored wife. And, and they really apply to any restoration of relationship. But thinking God, the past is taken care of. Because our sin is, is paid for, we can have relationship. The shame's gone. It's done. And then he goes on in, in beautiful language to describe a covenant of love. And that's letter B there. Covenant of love. For your maker is your husband. And we talked about this with one of the names of God. And I'm not even going to try to find it. But um, your maker is your husband. The creator of the world is your husband. Yahweh of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth is called. If that verse is overwhelming, it's because right there are six names of God that show his care, that show his provision, that shows relationship. They all show His power and His grace. 
And so the, the context here is, you've walked away from me, you've deserted me as my wife, but I'm your husband. And I am strong and I will protect. I am holy and I have cleansed. I am your redeemer. I have paid for your sin. I am the God of the whole earth. And I love you. Verse 6, he goes on, For Yahweh has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In that brief moment, we can read that and say, Oh, what? God deserted? No, this isn't a, a, a description of the discipline of exile, of the discipline of Babylon. And discipline feels like desertion sometimes. When I discipline my kids, they don't spring up right away and say, thank you, Dad, that was great. (laughs) Never had it happen. If they do, I probably need to pick a different discipline. (laughs) And and, and I I see it and I I tear up because disciplining my kids is the hardest thing I do. But I have to do it. Otherwise, living with them will be the hardest thing I do. Right? And and in that moment of discipline, I feel a breach in that relationship. And, And I can see why God says, I deserted you for a brief moment. I disciplined you. But with great compassion, I will gather you. Oh, the love of God. He loves us enough to discipline us and He loves us enough to gather us after He's disciplined us. And He's saying that to Israel But boy, we can learn from that. You're not abandoned. You're not deserted. And then he goes into verse 8. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you. That's the discipline. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says Yahweh, your Redeemer. Ties it back to Isaiah 53. Because I've redeemed you, I've shown my love for you, I've disciplined and now it's paid for, it's done. And now there's this covenant of love. The word for everlasting love is hased. And, and actually there's a, a more of a guttural that happy can do and I can't. But um, it, and, and this word is the closest Hebrew word we have to agape love in the New Testament. We talk about agape love in the New Testament right, as, as this unconditional, perfect love. The word here has said in, in Hebrew is that kind of unconditional love, but it adds a layer of covenant, of promise. And so whenever we see phrases like everlasting love or your love endures forever, it's probably using this word and it says, I am covenanting with you to love you forever, no matter what. It is such a beautiful word. And that is the word that God chooses to use for how He's restoring His bride to Himself. With everlasting love. Covenant love that isn't up to you. That includes kindness, loyalty, and faithfulness. A commitment. I will have compassion on you. Says Yahweh, your Redeemer. So what to Isaiah 53? The so what is He's redeemed us to love us. And that should move us to love Him back. To be in relationship with Him. To honor what He's doing. At the same time, 
God is giving us a beautiful picture of what love and marriage should look like. Because love and marriage should be a Hesed covenant love that doesn't fail, that isn't conditional on whether the other person burns our toast or not, or makes us angry or not, or meets my every need or not. But says, I will love you and covenant with you because my God loves and covenants with me. Amazing picture of marriage. A Puritan preacher, Thomas Brooks, said this about about God's love. The only ground of God's love is his love. The ground of God's love is only and wholly in himself. There is neither portion nor proportion in us to draw his love. There is no love nor loveliness in us that should cause a beam of his love to shine upon us. Do you catch what he's saying? It is completely unconditional just because God chose to love us. If I don't do anything to earn God's love, then there's nothing I can do to lose God's love. That make sense? This is all part of his everlasting love. This is a beautiful chapter of restoration. Of God saying, doesn't matter what's happened. That's paid for. It's done. And with everlasting love, I have compassion on you. And I bring you in. Sin alienates us from God. And God takes care of the sin so he can have relationship back with us. And so then we get to verse 9 and, nine and 10. The third part of this re- being a restored relationship and the image of a restored ri- wife is not only is there a covenant of love, but there's a covenant of peace and reconciliation. And he refers back to the Noetic covenant where, where God promises to never destroy the world by a flood again. And he, he refers back to that by saying in verse 9, This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over this earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. That's amazing. For the mountains may depart, the hills may be removed, but my steadfast, my said love, shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. He's talking security and permanence here. And when you restore relationship, that's one of the things we're looking for. Is there security here now? Can, can we, are we restored enough where I can be myself again? And God says, oh, there's security. There's permanence here. It's paid for. And God's the one making the promises anyway, and He's completely faithful and dependable. Now we know, we know that Israel still was facing some times of discipline. And in fact, until sin is taken care of, ultimately, in the new heavens and the new earth, we still struggle with it, right? Chances are you've sinned this week. Two weeks ago, you all admitted it. I have it on tape. Uh, not tape anymore, is it? Whatever it is now. <laughs> Ones and zeros. And so we know that Israel would still be disciplined, but God is promising a future that is incredible where there eventually will be no more sin. And eventually there will be no more discipline. And never a time that God is challenged by our sin. But even now, His covenant of love and peace is with us. I love the imagery in 10. For the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. 
even if Mount Whitney falls down, even if Baldy, we go out tomorrow morning and it's gone, even if Yosemite gets filled in, that'd be sort of sad. Even if those things happen, his covenant love and his covenant of peace will not fail. See, part of out of Isaiah 53, the so what, is it shows us God's commitment and his faithfulness. And I can have joy in that and I can have peace in that and I can rest in that and that gives me hope that allows me to live for him. A thought on peace. Oftentimes we think of peace as absence of war. Uh, usually when it's used in, in these contexts, it's an absence of, uh, absence of hostility between people. And so if I make peace with someone, think of it this way, if I make peace with something, I'm taking care of anything between us so we can have relationship again. And so when, when he says there's a covenant of peace, he is talking about relationship with us, the ability to have nothing between us and God, nothing separating us. And we, we've seen peace throughout Isaiah. In Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, when the, the servant is first introduced, he's described as the prince of peace. And, and of, in his kingdom, peace will have no end. We see that in Isaiah 27. Let them make peace with me. Be right with me. In Isaiah 52... We see how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. And the gospel is declared as peace because it's making things right with God. In fact, in Isaiah 48, 22, the introduction or the last verse of the last section that introduced this section said, there is no peace for the wicked. Isaiah is about peace. And if you trace it through, God has said there's no peace for the wicked. He leads up to the servant. Isaiah 53 says that here's how the wickedness is taken care of. Now there's peace. In Isaiah 53, verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. When he was crushed for our iniquities, When he took the punishment, then we have peace with him because we are right with God. Oh, what a beautiful restored relationship. This section is all about fixing being alienated from his presence and the joy of being in relationship, the joy of being in presence with God. It's where the title of the sermon today comes from, the joy of presence. I asked Mark what he thought, one of my kids, what he thought about that. What do you think of when you hear joy of presence? Christmas, Dad. So I explained to him that you spell it differently and what it means. and It was just sort of a fun way to introduce and be able to talk about what this is talking about. Question out of this. Are we all in in this relationship with Jesus? Are we all in to the relationship that Jesus bought with his life and paid for with his scars? What is holding you back? Because Jesus is all in. And again, this flows out of Isaiah 53. Christian said everything and everything is right. If he paid everything to enable us to have a relationship with him, 
what does that say about us when we refuse to? Oh man, that tears at the heart. But think of it on the positive side. He, he made everything possible. So now I can chase Him and pursue Him and I know He's present with me and I know that He loves me with a covenant of love and a covenant of peace. Don't hold back in Christianity. If you're just here on Sundays and this is the extent of your Christianity, oh, you are doing disservice to what Christ did on the cross. He wants so much more than that. And He paid with His life to make it possible. If someone saves your life, you don't just say, ah, thanks, we're friends now and walk away. There's more of a debt there. And so the so what here is be in relationship with God. And finally, we get to the last few verses and the pictures of a city of God rebuilt because Israel was in shambles. They weren't even in Jerusalem anymore. The temple needed to be rebuilt. The city needed to be rebuilt. And here God is showing them a picture of the future. Because of His servant, God promises His people a beautiful future with Him. And He uses the city of God, which we've seen in Isaiah already, the city of God, His kingdom as his illustration. And here as we read this, you're going to hear all kinds of echoes of Revelation because he's talking about the new heaven and the new earth here. In verse 11, O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted. That's the bad side. Those that are deflated by outside sources, no, no help. It, it reminds us of everything Israel's gone through. Behold, and here's the reversal, I will set your stones in antimony and a foundational powder that they would use. And lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agates and your your gates of carbuncles and all your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by Yahweh and great shall be the peace of your children. And he's setting a picture of the future. That John may have been, the Apostle John may have been reflecting on as as the Spirit led him to write Revelation. And we see God coming and building up and esteeming His people that were represented by this city. And we we see some things in this section that are, are what a father would do, what a husband would do. And that's the imagery in the chapter. So I think it's appropriate to say, this is God is saying, I'm your husband and this is what I'll do. And He cares and esteems is the first thing that's mentioned here. He builds up with precious gems, so He values highly. In Revelation 21, verse 2, we read, And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And so Revelation combines husband-wife metaphor with the city. He says, your future is good. Walk with me. Because I have paid for your sin, there is a future of a city that's going to be beautiful. God is on the scene. In verse 13, we saw that God is also the one that teaches. He teaches like a husband would teach his family. And and it it says, all your children shall be taught by Yahweh. And then we see, and and great shall be the peace of your children. Dads, husbands, one of our jobs is to bring peace to the household. If things are worse every time we're home and there's no peace, let's look in the mirror. Let's take that on as our responsibility that we create peace. We create connections 
where there's nothing between people in our households. It's up to us. We set the tone. If we're leading, we set the tone. And so God cares and esteems like a husband will. He teaches like a husband. He gives peace like a husband. And then in verse 14 through 17, God protects like a husband. God protects like a husband. It's part of our role, again, as husbands, as dads. We protect. We should protect. In righteousness, you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression. You shall not fear. There's uh, the, uh, the concept of not fearing again. And from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it's not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. He's saying, I've disciplined you. And, and so now in the new heaven and new earth, you don't even have to worry about that anymore. I'll take care of you. Anyone comes against you, boom, they're gone. Behold, I've created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces weapon for its purposes. I am sovereign over all. I've also created the ravager to destroy. And if I've created them, the implication here is I can stop them. Don't worry. Don't fear. And then the last verse, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. The, the, the next sentence is really the, the conclusion of the chapter. Summary of the chapter. This is the heritage of the servants of Yahweh and their vindication from me, declares Yahweh. This is the heritage of the servants of Yahweh and their vindication is from me, declares Yahweh. And in this case, God is taking his city and he's promising a beautiful future with him. And that's our heritage. That's our inheritance. That's what we look forward to because of Isaiah 53. We now are part of a new kingdom, a new family, and we should live like we're part of that kingdom. And, and one of the ways he shows it, look at that last phrase there. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. This marks a change in Isaiah. And this is a sort of fun language stuff. This is a change in Isaiah. The servant has been used singular up till now. It is not used in the singular for the rest of the book. Because now God has said, because of my servant, you are servants. Because I died on the cross and bore your sin, now you take the mantle of being servants, of being light to the world. And so I, I see in this a commission. And Isaiah has gone through this sequence. Israel was the servant and failed. So God sent his servant, the perfect Messiah, Jesus Christ, who succeeded and built a family and a community of servants who now take the mantle and continue his work. With his promise that I will be with you wherever you go. What a beautiful picture of the so what of Isaiah 53. We're to have the heart of God for the lost. We're to, to pursue that restored relationship, appreciate it with gratitude and not take it lightly. We have an inheritance that we can look forward to and nothing can take that away. And so because that inheritance is secure, because our future is decided, we can be servants that abandon all for the cause. And this goes back to what Pastor Andrew was preaching about last week. I told him this morning, I said, this might as well be the second part of your sermon. 
because where he's going is you have all this guaranteed. We have a, 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 an inheritance in heaven. So why not give everything for God here? Why not? Our future can't be destroyed. He gave it all for us, and so we're just honoring that relationship. He takes care of things in His covenant of love, in His covenant of peace. So what holds us back of saying, I believe in Jesus Christ and I'm going to serve Him here. And I don't care who says what. I don't care what kind of grief I might get, what kind of persecution I might get. I don't care if I'm scared to go talk to my neighbor because I'm worried about what they'll think. I'm going to share Christ with them. He died on the cross for their sins. And and after Isaiah 53, that's not just a statement we say. That should mean something. We are sons and daughters of the King. And that changes everything. Let's go out and tell people. Let's live like it. Live as men and women of integrity that honor truth, that stand for the morals and values of God's Word, that do not shy away from opportunities to expand the tent, that actively look for ways to bring people into the kingdom of God. All this is because of what He's done for us. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, thank You for Your Word. We've praised You this morning for what You you did in Isaiah 53. We've praised You for bearing our sins through Your blood, taking away the penalty for that sin. And Lord, help us now to live in light of that 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 would change us, that we would want others to experience the same thing, Lord God, that we would be so appreciative of our relationship with You that we revel in it and enjoy every moment of it. Lord, that we're willing to abandon self and everything that we hold dear for the sake of Your kingdom, for Your name. Lord, thank You for giving us the ability to do that and the strength to do that. In Jesus' name.